Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is your Sunday Morning Shift. Writer, producer, and woodworker Nick Offerman has been part of the American Zeitgeist for more than two decades. He's appeared in more than 50 films, countless TV shows, and is best known for his role as the uber-libertarian Ron Swanson on NBC's Parks and Rec. The whole point of this country is if you want to eat garbage, balloon up to 600 pounds, and die of a heart attack at 43, you can. You are free to do so. To me, that's beautiful. Offerman is versatile. In addition to comedy, he's performed serious stage drama, hosted a reality show, and starred in a punk rock video for the L.A. band Fiddler. Now he's touring the country with a one-man show called All Rise, which he describes as a, quote, evening of deliberative talking with light dancing. Are you catching the dry humor there? Nick Offerman, the pride of Manuka, Illinois, brings his show to the Chicago Theater on September 15th, and he joins me now. Welcome to The Morning Shift. Thank you so much. What a generous introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple of years ago, you delivered the commencement speech at your alma mater, the University of Illinois. And in it, you talked about teachers who inspire you, and you took some stabs at consumer culture and the idea that happiness can be bought. And that's also a theme in the live show you're bringing to Chicago. Why is that so important to you? I'm not the funniest guy to come down the street. Uh, There are men and women that are good friends of mine, the Zach Galifianakis's and Sarah Silverman's of the world, the Amy Schumer's, who can always say the funniest thing in any given situation. That's not my bag exactly. And so when I had the opportunity to begin touring and speaking to live audiences, I said, all right, well, you're you're not great at jokes, uh, but you have had a lot of great teachers, and people seem to really enjoy it when you pass along some of the pearls of wisdom that I've gleaned from my teachers. So what I do is take those notions, the sort of the, the tenets that have made my life rich and rewarding, and then I wrap them in delicious pizza or <laughs> throw a strip of bacon around it and throw it on the grill and then present it to the audience so that they think everything is delicious, but secretly there's broccoli hidden inside. And <laughs> they leave having been nutritionalized. Well, your worldview really seems to dovetail nicely with your love of handcrafted items. Um, In our one-click, two-day world of shipping, how does that connect to the way you're approaching your show? It's just how I grew up. I grew up in this great family in in Manuka, Illinois. And to, to a person, even today, everyone is farmer, school teacher, nurse, librarian, and my brother's a craft brewer. Like everybody is a, some sort of public servant. Everyone has a garden. People mend their clothing. They're excellent mechanics. You know, there, there's a frugality to life that I always found to be one of the main sources of pleasure and satisfaction. Sadly, a, a teacher's income is very modest. And you could take that income and feed four kids and have a great time because of your creativity and your ingenuity. And I learned that from my family. I carried it into a life in the theater, which started in Chicago. 
And there also, you never have a big budget. You know, you have to create magic. You have to create spectacle and splendor, you know, from a pile of two-by-fours and a jar of glitter. And when you do that successfully, the audience, your audience, your people come along with you. And they say, we are all spending this moment creating this experience together. And that recompense, the, the magic in those moments, I understood from a young age is such a better paycheck than a bunch of money and a couple of BMWs. And so in the modern uh, political climate, you know, where everybody's shaking their fist at each other, I'm trying to emulate my hero, Wendell Berry, the Kentucky farmer and agrarian writer. He has such a great point of view about how we've allowed our, our laziness and our, our, our love of consumerist luxury to take us away from those simple truths, you know, the pleasure of a family around a dinner table or the fun that can be had in a farmyard with just a softball and a bat. That's the platform beneath me, and, and I happened to land in a career where people say, hey, you know how to glue things together? Here's a, here's a swell host job. <laughs> uh, I should say you've produced a documentary uh, that's now on Netflix about Wendell Berry. What originally drew you to his work? How did you find him? I was working on a play at the uh, celebrated Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago, um, Sam Shepard's Buried Child, that Gary Sinise was directing. And there was a wonderful actor named Leo Burmester, who sadly is no longer with us. He was based in Kentucky. He had worked a lot at the Actors Theater of Louisville, and this is probably 1995. He handed me a book of Wendell Berry short stories and said, I think you would like this, because he and I had certain, we had begun to get along sort of as old farm boy types. And I read those stories, and they just took me apart and put me back together. Uh, he, he writes fiction, essays, and poetry, and it's all the most delicious repast you could hope for. But these short stories, I've never read anybody who treated the humble hard work that I had grown up being taught, just a simple farmer's work ethic. He treats it like the most exquisite ballet or the finest meal Paris has ever served. It just gutted me. I, I, I find his writing so moving because of his respect for the simple humanity that everyone shares. You said you're not uh, you're not funny. I'm using quotes there. But in your show, while you're talking about heavy subjects, you are doing it, you know, with humor and, and with song. And it makes me think about, you know, some of the classic American humorists like you know, Mark Twain or, or Will Rogers. Do you also look to them for inspiration? You know, I can't really uh, put myself in the same drawer as those guys. I, I happily emulate their techniques and their abilities. But you know what it is? I, I, I'm i usually talking to myself more than I'm talking to the audience. Uh, if I'm suggesting ways in which we might improve uh, our lifestyles or the way in which we're treating our planet or our fellow humans, I'm usually directing those comments to me because I'm always hoping to improve uh, the hand of cards that I've been dealt. That's interesting because you talked about the divide um, in the country right now, people shaking their fists at one another. But it seems like this connection you've had to 
I don't know that this is the right way to say it, but to simplicity has been consistent through your life. So I want to hear more about the conversation you've been having with yourself over the course of your career as you've been, you know, moving from the stage into television into film and still maintaining a hold on on the life you grew up with. Well, it's it's yeah, I mean, that's very astute. Uh, it's all tied together. Um that's the secret is that in simplicity, you can find all things. You can be absolutely satisfied. Like a monk, you know, the, the uh, way that nirvana can be achieved, uh, the less you have going through your head and the less you have in your pockets, the happier you're going to be if you're, if you're thinking right. When I started out in theater, I was ignorant. It made me a very bad actor. I had this idea, sort of subliminally, that uh, this kid, you know, it's Hayseed from small-town Illinois was boring, was uninteresting. Like, I needed to really flash it up. I needed to put on a leather jacket and somehow move more like the sharks and the jets. Uh, and eventually I learned, oh, that's uh, that's idiotic. The most valuable thing any of us have is simply what we're born with. That's your toolbox. And the trick is figuring out what tools you're given and, and what job you can apply them to. How long and was that I, learning curve for you? It was about, uh, I started theater school down in Champaign-Urbana, and uh, we took a year off. That's uh, it's another episode. We went and toured a kabuki show uh, around the world um, with Shozo Sato. But so with the year off, I did five years of theater school. It didn't <laughs> sink in during those five years. Then I got to Chicago, and my friends and I had a company called The Defiant Theater. This mm-hmm. was 1993. And we would do a three-show season. And the third show of our first season was an original piece called The Quarantine. Really funny, crazy play by a guy named Darren Critz. And it was the first time that my best friend Joe Faust gave me the lead in a show. We'd been living together, and he kept not giving me the parts that I, I seemed perfect for. And he said, yeah, you just, you know, I'm your friend, and here's some tough love. You're not good enough to play this part. Yes, you're perfect for it, but you're bad at acting. And so eventually, by working hard, I got to the point where I sort of discovered, you know, the first inklings of naturalism. He gave me that part in the quarantine, and that's where it all started, where I said, oh, if I can just act like myself, people seem to really buy it, Uh, (laughs) rather than trying to affect some sort of cool walk. (laughs) Mm. So I'm thinking about this period of five years, and I, I think it's a pretty common experience, you know, young people leave home and try to establish an identity away from the family that they grew up with, the community, the neighborhood, try to figure yeah. out who they are. But what I'm hearing is that in in your life curve, you sort of ended up back at home. And I just wonder how your relationship to Manuka, to your family, how that changed when you had that light bulb that came on and said, oh, wait, I'm a good actor when I'm just authentically me. Did that shift the relationships in your life at all? I, I suppose it did. I mean, it's uh, it's slightly more complicated in that I knew uh, instinctively I wanted to get out of the conservative atmosphere of my town. Incredibly nice people, but, you know, very white, just very conservative. I, I, I knew that homophobia and racism were alive and well in my town. And 
I wasn't a great thinker by any stretch. I just had this gut feeling that I wanted to be, eh, I wanted to represent all the people. I wanted to be out among all the people. So I had that idea of rebellion, get away from my little town. I got to, I got to the bustling metropolis of Champaign-Urbana and, you know, met slices of a lot more of the world than I had ever seen before. And so the first thing I realized, getting amongst all these other kids, was how incredible my mom and dad were in the lessons that they had given me. And again, it comes to simplicity. They're the greatest people I've ever met to date. They taught me to be honest, which I wasn't always good at. You know, They told me to always be honest, so I was like, okay, mom and dad, that means I'm going to try lying to people. <laughs> and you know, they said if you work hard and you're honest, then no one can ever fault you. If you do your best then you'll get as far as you can and you can't get in trouble. And so in my late teens, once I got to college, it hit me when I was out on my own. It's like, oh, um, you were so right. I called my dad and said, listen, I'm sorry about the last few years. Uh, (laughs) I've behaved in a typically uh, teenage boy fashion. But from here on out, I'm going to do my best. And so I still had a few years to sort of let that sink into my acting but once I did, it, I mean, it's still going. It's still the the farther my career goes, the more people say, oh, you, you know, you know how to use a shovel. Well, here's a part in a movie. Well, I, I we've been talking a lot about about woodworking, just, you know, on the fringe of our conversation. But you're involved with a project called Woodworks through your wood shop. I want you to tell us more about that. Sure. I am crazy about this organization called Woodworks, W-O-U-L-D, works.com. You can find it. Uh, some some really sharp folks working with the homeless here in Los Angeles came up with the idea. And it's a program by which people on Skid Row or homeless people can sign up to perform labor on woodworking gift items. They do cutting boards and coasters and different holiday items. And the thing is, so many of the homeless people, when you hear homeless, you think, oh, you know, sad, drug addict, like drunk people or something. And such a majority of the people are actually just really unlucky, normal people. And all of them are just people. You know, it's it's easy to sort of categorize them in our heads as some other. But there's one specific lady. She was a single mom, had a 13-year-old son. And there was a car accident in which his her son, his arm was shattered mm. and she didn't have insurance. The medical bills cost her her home and her son. She lost custody of her kid. She lost her home. She ended up homeless on the streets of L.A. Now, all this lady wants to do and most of these people, all they want to do is get back on their feet. That's why it's called Woodworks. These people would work if they could. But one of the great obstacles when you don't have an address is just filling out an application for work. And so what what happens when you sign up to perform labor at this program, you sign up not for money, but for things you need. So you'll sign up for a pair of glasses, a suit of clothes, first month's rent, just something, some, some uh, incredibly valuable credit. And then they'll determine, okay, first month's rent, uh, you should work, you know, 60 hours. So then the person performs the 60 hours of labor, they receive the first month's rent, but even more importantly, they now have a work reference. So if they go to get a job out in the world, they can call Woodworks and they'll say, yes, Julie showed up, you know, every day she was on time. She's a good lady. Give her a chance. 
it's this fledgling program, and my wood shop is very grateful, you know, that it's in our wheelhouse. So our woodworkers run the workshops. You know, we, we help sort of foster this program. And I just, you know, it's the kind of thing that I wish would be replicated across the country because we obvious, obviously have this incredible wealth disparity. And I've visited homeless people. I've visited people in prisons. And it's, I, I highly recommend it to everybody because immediately you're struck with how human all of these people are. And most of them are not evil. You know, they, they didn't come out of the womb hoping to kill somebody. They are simply people in unfortunate circumstances who made a bad choice at some point. And I'm very grateful anytime we can pitch in because uh, there's a great leveling we need to keep striving for. Well, and it sounds like your your show, All Rise, is about helping us connect more perhaps to people who aren't necessarily on our radar, people who we may walk past a little too easily. You know, I try not to take myself too seriously. I, I don't think uh, I'm going to see a major cultural shift from 90 minutes of my scintillating comedy. Well, you never know. <laughs> I mean, but it is. I, I do. First and foremost, I want to make everybody laugh and have a good time. And then beyond that, I try to make it feel as medicinal as possible, both for me and the audience. I'm trying to be on the side of the good guys and gals, easing us towards... Uh, what I believe is the point of America, supposedly, and that is to be decent equally to everybody. And we we got a ways to go before we've achieved that. And considering your roots in Chicago, what will it be like for you to bring the show back here? I spent a lot of years in the 90s working different jobs and, you know, being a hustling theater kid, taking my backpack full of tools on the train, being down in the loop, and you know, quite frequently, you're you're on the up on the platform right next to the Chicago Theater, seeing the marquee. You know, at, at the time, my my aspiration was to like you know get more than two scenes in a Steppenwolf play. Mm. I never, in a million years, dreamed that my name would ever be on the marquee at the Chicago Theater, and it's so surreal. And Chicago, I always get really emotional because. The fact that they treat me like one of their own, you know, like one of the family, makes it really special. I do my best. I work so hard on my material. To get to do this at the Chicago Theater is so so incredibly fortunate. And so it just, when, when life hands me bounty of that nature, it makes me redouble my efforts and say, okay, don't turn into any more of an asshole than you already are. Just put your head down and get back to work and make sure that you deserve this opportunity. That's Nick Offerman. He'll team up again with Amy Poehler for the second season of Making It. That airs later this year. Meanwhile, he's hitting the road with his show All Rise, and you can see him at the Chicago Theater September 15th. Nick Offerman, it has been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. It's a dream to uh, to be on this side of BEZ. I've enjoyed it. It's, the, uh, it's one of the most soothing sources of information when you're building a set in Chicago. And so for all of you building scenery right now, just make sure it's safe enough for people to make love upon because somebody will sooner or later. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to the show. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a rating. It helps other people find us. Another great way to get in touch is by leaving us a voicemail. You can give us a call with any feedback you have. Leave us a message at 888-915-9945. That's 888-915-9945. I'm Jen White. Let's talk again soon. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.